0: I'm Steve. Uh, I've wrote this thing here, which is copies up here. If you want afterwards, um, I've signed some copies and very happy to sell them to you, but that is not the purpose of the talk. Um, can you hear me at the back? Yes. You raise your hand if you can't hear me at the back. <laughs> My old headmaster King Edward of the Don't, seventh yeast. Don't turn away too much because your voice faded when you did. Right, thank you. I'll try, I'll address you as much as I can face on. Um, we're going to talk about Norfolk Coast and the Great War. And the way uh, I've written the book and the way that I'd like to talk about it today is to go sort of clockwise around the coast. Get this thing to work here. There we go. Uh, starting in Kingsland, Cassandringham, Sunny Honey, Across the Top Wells, um, Cromer, Sheringham, Great Yarmouth. I'm going to tell you some wonderful stories about some sometimes top secret work in these places. Um, When we get to Cromer, I'm going to stop for a second and talk about the nitty gritty more about what life was like every day entertainments, courts, food, that kind of thing. Um, And just before we start on King's Lynn, let's have a little general session on what life was like in Norwich and Norfolk in 1914. So, if you wanted a job, what jobs were there? Any ideas? Shoes. Sorry? Shoes. Shoes, absolutely. Um, a number of uh, shoe manufacturers produced boots for the Allied armies that were the envy uh, of the world. And I think the shoe manufacturing industry went on until the 70s. Dolcis was it? In the end, uh, and it collapsed a bit at that time. But yes, yeah, shoes.
1: Coleman's mustard.
0: Sorry. Colman's mustard. Uh, absolutely, yes. Coleman's mustard. Yeah, that uh, was operating down Riverside, wasn't it? Jeremiah Coleman, a picture of whom we've got later. Way ahead of his time. Um, he produced accommodation for his workers, which is still there, just outside Norwich, isn't it? Um, he produced had a school for workers. His wife um, was instrumental in helping produce food. I think it was stew and bread for three old pennies at lunchtime for the workers. And uh, when he died, his uh, cortege was accompanied by thousands up Prince of Wales Road. Yes, yeah, so mustard, um, chews, chocolate. chocolate, yes, Cayley's, absolutely. Um, the, during the, uh, the famous stoppage in 1914 when, when the troops played football uh, one of the gifts that the British troops might well have given the German troops was Cady's chocolate because we have a record that they produced and sent a thousand slab, slabs of chocolate to the troops on the front line just before Christmas. Cady's uh, okay, chocolate shoes.
1: Agriculture.
0: Agriculture. Agriculture was the big one um, as many as 60% of people in this in Norfolk were employed in the agricultural sector. Um, I won't will vlog this. I'll, I'll carry. It. anybody anything else? Domestic.
2: Sorry. Engineering Lawrence and Scott.
0: Absolutely, engineering Lawrence and Scott, Bolton and Paul down on Riverside as well, produced more of the Sockwith Camel aircraft than anybody else. They were tested on mouse uh, mousehole Heath. So I live actually in a flat that was part of the warehouse of uh, Bolton and Paul now. So um, that's a a nice little thing for me, uh, to think that I'm I'm living uh, in a place where software and camera aircraft were manufactured. I'm just going to say, next I'll say servants and domestic service. That also is a very big... uh, Employer in Norfolk. There were more domestic serv- servants per capita in Norfolk than anywhere else. And we're talking about uh, servants from junior maids at £30 a year to senior butlers at £90 a year. In comparison, the agricultural workers' average age was about, wage was about £75 a year. So, um, jobs in Norfolk. Were, were plentiful and easy to come by. If you could, oh, we've forgotten um, Aviva, What's that? What was that called? Virginia. Of course, um, a figure that stuck in my mind. In 1908, they had assets of eight and three-quarter million pounds. <laughs> I just stuck here for some reason. Of course, that was a vast amount of money then, wasn't it? Now, what about housing? Um, I'm going to read you a paragraph from my book here. I'm going to do a few little readings. not going to be too many, but sometimes when it's a little bit technical, like this. Most working people at this time rented their housing either privately or through their employer. Coleman's led the way in this regard, as we've just said. The cost of a modest property would likely be several shillings a week. The Norfolk Chronicle in August 1914 offered a small cottage in Baconsthorpe with one quarter of an acre of garden for three and six. In the same addition, for the budding small business person, a quote, small pou- poultry farm, one acre, unquote, unquote, could be rented for £30 a month. For those with deeper pockets, a house and estate were offered for sale at £1,200. Many of the opportunities for more adventurous entrepreneurs centred on the empire. For example, in the EDP, Of the same period, August 1914, 700 acres in Nova Scotia, Canada, could be bought for £3,000, half cash in brackets. Okay, so very briefly, that's what life was like in jobs and housing uh, in in Norwich and Norfolk (coughs) at this time. Let's go around the coast now and talk about some of the amazing things that were going on during this, this time in the war. We're going to start with King's Lynn which is, we know, whoa, I can uproot this thing, there we go. Um, has anybody heard of Kaim Wiseman? Chaim, C-H-A-I-M, Wiseman. He was the first president of Israel in 1948. But in 1916, he was a famous research chemist at the University of Manchester. Why is this important? Because in 1916, the British guns largely fell silent through a lack of cordite. Cordite, as we all know, I'm sure, was necessary to operate guns. And an essential ingredient of cordite was acetone. And acetone was generally produced using large quantities of wood, beech and maple especially. By 1916, this was obviously not possible anymore with the U-Boat campaign. And Lloyd George, who became Prime Minister in 1916, was a friend of Kaim Wiseman. And he asked him to perform a miracle to find another way of producing acetone. But obviously this was top secret. The British public could not be aware of this. Um, And Kind Wiseman came up with a mechanism called Wiseman's Organism, which produced large quantities of acetone from various foodstuffs, maize, wheat, and grain in particular. And one of the factories was in Kingsley. The other one was in Dorset. Um, this was so successful that British guns had no problems firing until a little bit before the end of the war in 1918, um, when Lloyd George said to him, Can you do something else? We need just a little bit more. And he, um, he, 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 he set about providing another method which involved conkers. Um, my section of my book is called Kingsling Cordite and Conkers. I'm sorry about that. But, um, Scouts and kids, and even the Queen Mum, apparently, in uh, the, sorry the Queen, in Sandringham, were recorded as going and picking up conkers, putting them in buckets, and taking them to a central depot where there were several pence per bucket. Several pence per bucket was offered. But so successful were the scouts in doing this that they produced far too many conkers, and uh, huge mountains of conkers were left to rot. This system uh, of producing acetone, unfortunately, was not as successful as the previous one, but it didn't really matter because the war was obviously being won at that time. Um, let me show you this gentleman here. Oh, I have a companion volume, by the way. <coughs> Nor- Norwich and the Great War, which is also on sale in Wartices and jails and so on. Here we go. This is, ch- this is the chap here, kind wise man, with his wife Vera. And this, of course, is... <coughs> can only be Lloyd George, can't it? And I think Philip Snowden is another gentleman in the middle there. Um, 19, back to about 1930, so a little bit after the war. There he is. Now, we're going up the coast a little bit to Sandringham. Now, anybody knows what a PALS unit is? Or was a PALS unit? Yes?
1: Uh, uh, Sandringham, uh, we're all not, right? Yes.
0: Uh, yeah, it was, in fact, any, uh, where any group of men who generally worked together got together and, and enlisted. Or
2: farm workers.
0: Yeah, farm workers, yeah. absolutely, or bankers or whatever. Um, one of the most successful uh, recruitments in, initially in the war was Attleborough, where the entire cricket and football team signed up as PALS units. And, in fact, Attleborough had 550 recruits in the war. And that's out of a total population of only two and a half thousand. Um, May I ask? Yes. I thought the Pals were only raised under the Derby scheme or under the Kitchener's Army scheme. These are territorial soldiers. These, this is a Sandringham company. That were, they were formed in 1908. I don't know Pals. Well, uh, Pals battalions are very much a northern phenomenon, raised under Kitchener's Army from 1914. Well, we I'm sorry, perhaps noise. we can talk about this afterwards. Becq <coughs> disagree at the moment, I think we're, we're talking technicalities here because... It's not, basic knowledge. It's not well, crazy. I, I res- respectfully disagree with you, okay? Um, this is the Sandringham Company. Frank Beck, in 1908, uh, was asked by the King to gather all the, all the workers of the Sandringham State together to form this company. and. Um, it's reputed that none of these men in this, in this photograph would be returned alive. Yes, please. Was
1: this that mystery? Where That's right. Yes. yes. I will Absolutely. They did a yes. Of
0: it. yes. It's a great mystery. They went off to war. Um, they were last seen going through a wood. Um, Frank Beck was last seen under a shot-blasted tree, either dead or resting. And... Um, they never came out of the wood, or they're never seen again anyway. And um, the Queen was very upset and she asked for an inquiry to be made. And I'd, I think 36,000 troops were killed in this action. You'll know, Mr. Story, I'm sure. Not 36,000 troops. In this whole action, in this particular. The 12th part. of August 1915, there were, 300 men. Not Yes, I know. I'm not talking about the, the overall campaign. They found 180 bodies with caps, with the uh Sandring Company badge on. Um, and it wasn't divulged until an inquiry, I think, in the BBC in 1951, that they have also had a bullet in the head. So, it was highly likely they were shot by the Turks, who didn't have much truck anyway with prisoners. Um, a more fantastical idea came to light. <laughs> this is where the legends tell us, isn't it? Um, in 1965, when a New Zealand sapper who was fighting alongside them reported that he had seen some loaf-shaped clouds descending upon the wood. And when the, cloud, when the, the loaf-shaped objects disappeared, so legend has it, the sandrigans were gone. Um, It's a subject which is fascinating right until this present day. I mean, and more research needs to be done. But it's part of the legend of the vanishing, they're called the vanishing regiment, the vanishing uh, unit to this day. So... Going up the coast a little bit here, we're going up to Sunny Honey, where I used to live as a teenager. We had a restaurant overlooking the green. Uh, Hunstton, Hunstanton, Sunny Honey, whatever you like to call it. Um, this gentleman here is called Bainton Hippersley. B-A-Y-N-T-U-N Hippersley. Anybody heard of him? Yes, please. Do you know? Yeah? I
1: know all
0: of you. Okay, thank you. Um, he was a, a, fairly, a uh, an amateur wireless, wireless operator and enthusiast. And um, he... There were a lot of these in Britain at that time. He is reputed to have heard messages from the Titanic going down in 1912. And when the war came about, the government was obviously very keen to uh, use men like him for their expertise and, frankly, lack of costs. And they set him up on the Huntsville Hunterston- and Cliffs with his friend Edward Clarke, I believe. Who, um, and they set him up in, in a wooden hut, which came to be known as Hibbersley's Hut. This still exists today. It was offered for sale uh, three years ago as a 5 bedroom extended house for £575,000. So I find absolutely fascinating. You can think where is the hut in the middle of that lot? Um, but he was very effective in listening into the uh, orders of the German U-boats and the uh, German high seas fleet, and uh, is reputed to have. Uh, been very important in the Battle of Jutland, Jack- which was the most important naval battle of the war in 1916, by by, his, by means of his communications and his interception, the British knew where the German fleet were at and, and various important stages of that battle. Um, you can still sometimes you used to wander out, obviously, onto the cliffs. This is at, at Old Stanton You can still wander around there by the by the old lighthouse, and um, do their stuff on the uh, outside um, this is a, actually this is a, a picture of the book um, known as the suicide squadron the Ibukiye, the Cressy and the home they were obsolete ships even in 1914 and three of them were sunk within the course of about 90 minutes um, now I say this because in the book, I was very privileged to be helped by local historical societies, one of which was in Wells. And a the lady there called Maureen Dye traced, uh, some, did some original work on the fate of her, one of her ancestors who was on the Abukir, when it was sunk. He was sent a message from the government, the usual thing saying missing in action or killed in action. But in fact, he wasn't. She found. That he was picked up with about 278 other, other uh, people by a Swedish ship <coughs> and um, he actually died on board the Swedish ship but he was given a great funeral uh, which was attended by the vice consul British vice consul in Sweden when, he, when the ship uh, decked. So it's a very important little point people are doing original research into their ancestors in the local studies around us. Okay. Around our coast. Now then, where have we got next? Oops, not him yet. Um Stiffke or Stooky. I found when I'm been doing my research, people swear to both, you know, some say stiffkey and some say Stooky. Uh, this gentleman, anybody know who he is? He was a rector. He was the chap. who was a naughty boy. That sounds up very well. yeah. Harold Davidson, who um, he went to Exeter College, Cambridge, but he wasn't very academic and he got sent down, because he preferred to be somewhere else most of the time, mainly in the theater. But he was um, a very powerful speaker, apparently, and he had great connections, and he was appointed to the prime um, living of Stiffkey and Morston, um, He was only five foot three, very energetic, very much active with all his parishioners. He tried to know all of them personally, apparently. One of these little human dynamos. Um, in the First World War, he served aboard uh, HMS Fox and HMS Gibraltar. Um, and he used to, um, he was once found in a brothel But he claimed he was looking for a girl that was known to his men. And nothing more was said on that particular occasion. He came home in 1918, not entirely happily because his wife was pregnant and he'd been away for a little while. (laughs) However, he accepted his wife's daughter as his own and carried on with his ministry. He had, however, a secret. Well, it wasn't exactly a secret. But it was something you didn't shout about in that prudish era. He used to like to go to Soho and visit the prostitutes there, uh, and take them to tea, um, and see if he could find them decent employment, or alternative employment, uh, and accommodation, away from what he saw as their shopping vice. He estimates in his diaries that between 3,000 and 4,000 girls were seen by him in this way. Now I think it was in 1930, he missed Remembrance Day service and he made an enemy of a chap called Townsend, I think, uh, Mr. Townsend, who owned a lot of land in the area and um, he was accused by this Townsend chap of insulting the dead. And news came out that he could possibly have been delayed because he was with... The girls in Soho. He was reported to the church authorities and proceedings begun against him, which, if he was found guilty, would result in him being default. Um, I think it was in 1932. Oh, they employed an, uh, a private detective to follow the girls in London, and there was just one girl who said anything dishonourable about him, and that was when she was drunk. And when she was sober, she recanted and tried to commit suicide. But the church laws ground on, and he was found guilty on all counts, and he frogged. Um, his life became even more bizarre. It's reputed that he applied to become a football manager, and then to manage a nudist colony. And then he took to appearing in a cage in a, a fun in Skegness. Um, where he would uh, be in the cage, bemoaning his fate, and he would be prodded by somebody uh, representing the devil. Um, he upped his game a little bit, uh, or a lot, after that. He obviously, wasn't getting the attention he deserved, he, what he desired. So he went into a cage with a couple of lions, well, a lion and a lioness called Freddie and Toto. And in 1937. Uh, one day, he went into the cage, he, he trod on the male lion's tail, that's Freddie's, sorry, the female's t- t- his tail, and Freddie uh, attacked him. He died two days later, and it's reputed that his last words were, word, did I make the front page? <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing tale, there, there's been, there have been several plays about it, there's certainly been more than one book, there's even been a musical. Um... About him. So, stif- key stooky. We go on now to, who's this chap? Rupert Brooke. And he was at Clay, or Cly, um, when the war broke out. He was staying with Frances Cornford, who's the great granddaughter of Charles Darwin. And she said, A young Apollo, golden haired, stands dreaming on the verge of strife magnificently unprepared for the long littleness of life Um, apparently when when he heard the war broken out he didn't speak for a day and she said but rupert you won't have to fight and he said we will all have to fight well he went off to fight but as we know he died en route he was bitten by a mosquito and get, got blood poisoning. Although Churchill thought it was more apt to say that he had died of sun, sunburn. A bit like Byron, big hero out there. He thought that was a more apt way to go, apparently. But unlike some famous contemporaries like Wilfred Owen, he never actually saw any, any fighting. But he did, for many, youth, for many young people especially, encapsulate um, the the magic of England and the romance of going to fight for England and um, I've got a couple of little bits to read you here, one is um, in 1912 he'd written The Old Vicarage Granchester and I'm sure you recognise the end of it it goes like this Oh is the water sweet and cool gentle and brown above the pool and laughs the immortal river still under the mill, under the mill Say, is there beauty yet to find, and certainty, and quiet kind? Deep meadows yet, or to forget the lies, and truths and pain? Oh, yet, stands the church clock at ten to three, and is there still honey for tea? Um, His most famous poem, which was read at his funeral in April 1915, it's probably the soldier, and you'll know this too, at least the first couple of lines. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace, under an English heaven. So that's a little story I've got for you about Clay or Cly. And uh, we we'll go on here. Um, who's this? This is Sherry. This is Olavidis, who's reputed to be, well, she was the, the world's the, the first world's first great female war photographer. Um, a few years ago, the European Union paid for the digital collection of her work to be gathered together, and you can see it now in Cromer Museum of all places, not sharing a Cromer. Um, she toured uh, the battlefields towards the end of the war, but she's also, and she has some, some great photographs of her of soldiers uh, in that collection, but she's also photographed the rich and the famous, including Lloyd George. She had a knack of allowing people to relax You know, sometimes when we look at photographs of the period, people are very stiff. But she chatted to them, and she managed to bring out an inner personality. And I think you can see that in this picture. That is a self-portrait of her, obviously, by herself. there. Um. Recognise this? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the Sheringham High Street, taken from the water tower or the clock. Um, that's 1913. This one with the uh, the chubby Bobby here, there, on duty. Um, the reservoir was in fact was the um, sorry it was in fact a reservoir, the water tower originally here, and the clock was donated by Miss Mary Pym in 1903. Uh, we went out uh, a couple of years ago before the book was published, and I tried to stand in exactly the same place, which is this picture over here. Um, and it's absolutely remarkable. If you look at the, the buildings, the bay windows, they're exactly the same. Paint apart. And I thought, I think this, this, this shop here is two. There's two shops over here. Um, and of course, the road is, is now uh, Time out. Do
1: you know when the gates
0: are added so you could have access to it? I don't know actually, no. Anybody know that? Because you can go in there now, you can, and sit, you can sit sit, can't, can't you? you and have a rest. I don't know when that was actually. Nobody knows? This is a picture from the other end, towards the you can hardly see it there, but it's uh, up at the end there of the water tower. This was taken two years ago on a bright Summer's Day. And this was taken in 19, about nineteen fourteen. Uh, again, I think I trace the uh, eaves here very much the same. Um, I think this building here is new, uh, but very much the same picture. Sheringham, you know, it's like Chroma, Paint jobs aside. Almost exactly the same as it was a hundred years ago. Is that still
1: the Starlings at the toy shop? No, is it Um
0: this Starlings here is at the toy shop now, is it? Yeah. I honestly don't know that. Well the Starlings are still there, isn't it? Yeah. I,
1: That's right. yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's, it's the, the same part part, same. I'm just trying to see what that
0: says there. Starling It's
1: a toy. News. 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 It says news, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah,
0: That's interesting still the same businesses then now going on to chroma for a little while we're going to stop in a second and talk about life and uh, how life was everyday in chroma but uh, first of all we have to talk about this chap here who is Henry Bloch often referred to as the bravest man who ever lived um, and uh, he was responsible for saving countless lives at sea during both the First and the Second World Wars, and I'll just read you a little bit here because it's amazing, I don't want to miss any bit of it out. Henry Blob's gallantry is without equal in the history of saving souls at sea, and he's commemorated today at his museum in Cromer. In 1924, he was awarded the Empire Gallantry Medal. In 1927, a gold watch, and his crew a silver one for a rescue on Haysborough Sands, In 1932, he received a silver medal for saving 30 men and a dog for the Monte Nervoso and a second silver medal from the Canine Defense League. In 1941, he gained the British Empire Medal and at the same time, his Empire Gallantry Medal of 1924 was changed to the George Cross. When he wasn't saving souls at sea, he had a business uh, letting out deck chairs on the beach. Right then, how was life in Cromer at this time? Um, I've got a picture or two here as well, I think. There we go. The showing me your picture of the pier. Um, yeah, this, is, this was taken about um, 1902, I think. This one on the left, looks slightly out of focus here. Sorry, on the right, it's about 1902. And that's a modern day version of the same thing. Um, you'll see it's very much more built up on the pier, and um, at the end, the lifeboat now launches from the pier there, from from the end of the pier. So it's got more building there too. Um This is the Hôtel de Paris. Um, this must have been before. That's the, the white bits there sticking out on the left. are the pier, uh, as it is now. So. Um, this must have been taken before the pier was built. I think the pier was built in 1898. But um, very much the same vista, isn't it? And the, uh, the church of St Peter and St Paul in the background is there, of course. And this house has got a code of paints on it. But apart from that, again, very similar indeed. Anybody know where this is? That also is, obviously, is Gerald and Cromer, about 1922. And you'll see they've got said, the library, because they used to have a private library operating from their one as well at that time. No, we won't go on to that quite yet. Life in Cromer. Um, this is what the EDP had to say about Cromer in 1914 a haunt of ancient peace, some call it, a health and holiday resort which all recognise nature has given of her best to make it a pleasant spot in which to stay. Its sea frontage has a nice length of promenade and appear free from anything in the nature of advertisements. Um, there were no shortage of... Excuse me a second, we'll come back here. Yeah, there were no shortage of adverts encouraging you to spend your money if you could. Waverly cigarettes, 10 for 3, 3D, old man. Nightfight, the premier wine food of the world, unrivaled for anemia, weakness, nervousness, and want of energy, enriches the blood, invaluable for convalescents and recommended by physicians. The Edwardians had an enormous around, array of pills for everything. And if, if you believe the advertisements, they could clear you uh, pretty much anything. Um, Overland, a car we don't hear of now, 1914. There were more Overland sold, it's an advert, than any other standard touring car in the world. Five seated touring car with full equipment, including electric lights and Gray and Davis electric starter, £275. Yes?
1: Is that the same Gerald as in Norwich,
0: the family? It's the same family, yes. yeah. Yes. Same business. Yeah? Yeah? We have a, a modern-day picture of this in the book as well. Um, it's almost, a, again, exactly the same. Uh, the, the building next door is a post office, and it still is a post office, and these buildings are going down the street are exactly the same, although they've been painted. And Gerald's frontage is a little bit different. Um, dating journals continued. There are a lot of dating journals in these days. Sorry? just going to say the only different
2: is uh uh the narrow is obviously uh uh
0: just at the end of uh the square there uh that was that's all being demolished obviously uh what right down the bottom here? right, yes there it. Right, yes. but I think this, this street is the same isn't it around here?
2: I've got this uh same uh uh sorry the narrative the idea of it was very narrow and
0: quite tried to but that destroyed the heart of the town I oh well thank you for that. Um, Dating journal, don't marry a German, but don't let the Germans stop you getting married. (coughs) Many happy marriages have been brought about by the matrimonial circle, an introductory journal containing hundreds of genuine advertisements. Um, This was all before uh, early 1914. By the 4th of August, the mood had changed and the war was very much in everyone's mind, as the Eastern Daily Press reported. Quote, Cromer and Sheringham send their national quota to the national call. There was great applause on Cromer Pier on Sunday night when the Royal Italian Band played the national anthem. Trade went on as well as could be expected. Um, The Eastern Daily Press carried an advert on the 1st of February 1916, reminding people that car purchase was quite possible in case they should feel disinclined. they advertised a town car for £185, a four-seater for £135, delivery van £130, seater £125, service in Cromer, Deerhamfagham, Norwich, Stalham, Thetford and the Great Yarmouth. A feature too of life in Cromer and in the rest of Norfolk was that people were encouraged to eat less. Um, guest houses and the hotels were by December 1915 required to restrict the eating habits of their patrons, as reported in the local papers. Um, quote, lighter meals, the restricted menus. The regulation of meals order came into operation yesterday, but in the interest of the economy and to safeguard our food supply, we are required to eat less. Courts. The courts continue to be busy and the following cases were reported in the Eastern Daily Press in 1914. I've got a couple here. Um, Norwich Quarter Sessions, foul stealing charges. John Henry Fritolf Baker pleaded not guilty to stealing 25 game fowls, property of Ernest Edward Fish of Scottsdale. Prosecutor said he missed the fowls on the 8th of February from their portable fowl houses. The leather hinge of one of the doors had been cut through, Mr. Dodson to witness. Anyway, they were not in the habit of tearing the hinges off their doors. Laughter. Witness, no. Uh, The prisoner was found guilty and sentenced to six weeks with hard labour. Francis Charles Barber, chauffeur, Cromer, was summoned for driving a motor at a speed dangerous to the public in Church Street. From the evidence of Inspector William Pyle, it appeared that seeing defendant driving fast, he called for him to stop. He put the pace at about 20 miles an hour. (laughs) There were pedestrians about at the time. defendant said that his car was six years old and noisy. He's put his speed at about 10 miles an hour. The chairman said that the magistrates were unanimously of the opinion that the case was proved. defendant would be fined 10 shillings with 10 shillings costs. And of course, a new uh, feature of the courts was people breaking regulations, especially lighting regulations. And the following is given in the Norfolk Chronicle and Norfolk Gazette on February the 23rd, 1915. It's headed, Chroma Petty Sessions, Unshaded Lights, and Mundersley. Alice Powell of the Clarence Hotel, Mundersley, was summoned for failing to effectively obscure lights on June the 20th. Special Constable gave probable evidence she said it was a fault of the servant. She was fined two pounds, including costs. James Francis Dennis was summoned for failing to put out a light at the Grand Hotel Cromer on the night of the 30th, July the 3rd, about 11 PM. Military observer saw bright light, which could be seen out to sea. Called for it to be put out three times, but no, no result so threatened to put a bullet through the window. Arrested defendant who said it had been on for only a few seconds when he went to well, he went down to pull the blinds when he went to pull down the blind he was fined fifteen shillings with four shillings of costs Now the war tribunals obviously sat throughout the war, and uh, if you didn 't want to fight, um, you were going to be hauled before the, 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 the tribunal um, and Whilst initially unsympathetic to able-bodied young men who choose, chose simply not to fight, um, provided you were prepared to take on a pacifist military role, uh, you might well be excused, or you might well have a case anyway. They uh, wouldn't necessarily excuse you, but um, they would listen. Um, these were a couple of cases. Um, from the time. Cromer Tribune, single man's responsibility. An appellant who had, had one period of exemption applied on the grounds of financial and domestic hardship. He was single, but had a mother and sister totally dependent on him. He also had a business and had tried hard to get someone to manage it. Captain Williams, I want this single man. It causes much ill-feeling, when we take married men of 40 with families and leave single men. I think the tribunal has been exceedingly kind to him. Exemption was refused. Another one entitled Young Man's Big Family. A traveling hawker who was represented by his mother was stated to be aged 23 and to have a wife and eight children dependent on him. His wife had six when they were married. The application was refused, but to help him sell his ponies, etc., the military agreed not to call him up for a fortnight. <coughs> a second, okay. Yeah, if anybody likes to say anything at all while we're going, please do. Were there protected
1: occupations during the first World war, or like were there were in the
0: second? Protected occupations.
1: Yeah. Do you know? You know. I don't know. You know. Sorry, I
0: don't know. What? Do well, you know? You know-
1: no, I don't. I just wondered, you know, there uh, were uh, some occupations like during the mm-hmm. Second World War where you did you know, because you were needed at home. Sure. Is that, were, yep. were they? protected? Yes, anybody know? Yeah.
0: Were they protected occupations? Yeah,
1: some agricultural workers, okay. I think, were exempt mm-hmm. from somebody. my father. He kept trying to join us. Your father? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, because of his knowledge of guns, they had him, in, in, uh, he was in the army, but he was not. He wasn't in a fighting, fighting regiment. He was used to train um, captains and stuff with uh, handguns and he did quite a lot. He never really talked about it because I think he was still possibly under the 60 year. Some people who went to France, how mm-hmm. to use handguns because of his training as a, well, he was a but he knew his gun. Right. I, I don't know a great deal about it. No. We've, got, we've got some information about it, but I did know that he was exempt because of that. Right, thank you. So there have yes. been people. I, think they, it just, I know they had the land army, but I think to some extent you still need the farmer or a farmer with some skill to teach the land Right. Which
0: a Okay. Um, okay that's a rough that's a little bit about chroma and how life was let's go on before we finish soon um that big thing there is a a a zeppelin that's actually a british zeppelin underneath you've got um with camel um the first the first um attacks upon the coast of isania i think it was 15th of January, or 29th of January, 1915. Oh, the 19th. Thank you very much. 19th January. Mm-hmm. Um, when Zeppelins appeared above Great Yarmouth, and they then followed the coast around, or perhaps blown around more, and they went around Sheringham, the Runtons, Cromer, and Hunstanton, and ended up in Kingsland, where they did a great deal of damage. It's important to mention the Zeppelins, because obviously at the beginning of the war, They were seen by the government as a great threat. They didn't know anything about them. They seemed to be a great threat. But I think by 1916, they were seen to be ineffective, really, from a military point of view. Um, An airplane design developed by leaps and bounds. Um, This is a a bomb that was actually dropped in Kingsland and failed to detonate. It gives you an idea of the bombs that they dropped. Now we're coming to Great Yarmouth now. Um, Apart from being the uh, seeing the first zeppelins above it, um, there was also also uh, a very well-known shooting down of a zeppelin off Yarmouth seafront, um, which I think was the L23. But um, crowds lined the seafront. And three British planes tried to down it. Uh, the first two approached it from below, apparently, and the guns jammed. The third one managed to empty their cartridges, their, their magazines, into the Zeppelin, became a fireball, and plunged into the sea. Um, that's got nothing to do with these two gentlemen. These two gentlemen, uh, I have a chapter in the book called Out at Sea, and there were some amazing heroics going on off our coast. Um, Anybody know who this Who either of these two might be? Um, This chap here Is called Tom Crisp If you go to Lowestoft, There's a Tom Crisp way as you enter The town, anybody know that? Um, He's wearing their Distinguished Service Medal Um, (coughs) I'm going to read you what what he did. I'm also going to read you a little bit of what this chap did as well. (coughs) The reason being that I don't want to miss anything out because it's amazing. Um, The legend of Tom Crisp, first of all. Tom Crisp was the East Anglian skipper of the smack Nelson. And he was in the North Sea on the 15th of August, 1917 with the fishing smack Ethel and Millie when he saw a U-boat about three or four miles distant. His crew immediately went into action Manning their 13 PDR gun. They were, however, no match in range for the gun of the U boat, the, the UC 63, which, after several shots finding range, tore a hole in the smacked wooden bow. Another shot passed through Tom Crisp's body, and although falling to the deck mortally wounded, he kept command, giving the helm to his son, who was also called Tom. He ordered confidential books to be thrown overboard. And released the ship's pigeons, which is how you used to communicate in those days, with the message Nelson being attacked by submarine, skipper killed, send assistance at once. Meanwhile, the crew had stopped firing back, and his son, Tom Chris, managed to launch their little boat. He said, Come on, Dad, we'll get you on board. And he said, No, leave me, I'm done for. And Tom Chris Jr., and the crew watched as his father sank in his smack. Um, Tom Chris Jr. and his crew were picked up by a destroyer a few days later. And he was summoned to Buckingham Palace, where he was given a Victoria Cross for his father. So that's, that's an amazing little story there about this chap. This one here, he's called Charles Friant. What he did is truly amazing. You won't (coughs) believe this, I'm sure. Um, He was a well-known captain who worked for the Great Central Railway Company, which basically operated between Tilbury and Rotterdam. He first came to fame when, on the 2nd of March, 1915, he was in command of the Wrexham and was ordered to stop by the U-boat U-12. He refused, ordering all available crew to help stoke the boilers, and managed to outrun the submarine he was presented with a gold watch by his employees. He executed the same escape two weeks later when in command of another ship, the Colchester. On the 28th of March, in command of yet another ship, the Brussels, he was ordered by the U-boat U-33 to stop, (coughs) but set his ship to ram the U-boat at full throttle. The German ship managed to dive just in time, but this enabled the captain to escape. He was given a second gold watch. He came under attack in the same ship twice more, this time by torpedoes which missed, and he subsequently managed to outrun two U boats. <coughs> However, on the 2nd of June he was cornered and his ship captured. There was no escape this time. He and his crew were interned. The German High Command decided that he must be tried by a naval court, and he was accused of deliberately attempting to ram a ship. Now, of course, he had attempted to do this, but According to Winston Churchill, it was a legitimate act of war. Um, However, the German court found him guilty, and he was shot immediately. The tale bears more than a passing resemblance to that of Edith Gabelle, who I'm sure we've heard of. Um, She was was a nurse in occupied Belgium, and she was shot by the Germans in 1915, I think. both, um, both shootings produced outrage in Britain and were responsible for the recruitment of many thousands of people. Um, both Charles Fryatt and Edith DeVell were brought back to Britain at the end of the war in the same railway carriage. He was buried at Dover Court, and Edith DeVell was brought back, and as we know, now lies. Live screening in Norwich Cathedral. Well, they, they've redone really a the grave lately. we've seen that. I personally don't like it as much as I used to think the old ones, they sort of tarmac it over. Right. Now, I'm going to end up now with a bit of fun. Um, a picture quiz. Um, this really is, is not just frivolous, it's a way of, of getting, uh, mentioning some things that we just don't have time to mention properly uh, in the talk. Um, I've been linking with them by the pictures linking with these things by the pictures so where and what is this?
1: Tower at Great
0: uh, yes it is yes it, it, what kind of tower is it? it's an observation, it's an observation tower absolutely um, you, you went in there and it went up and down and it, you can't see it here but it's 3 3D Sorry?
2: Until
0: it didn't <coughs> go? It didn't come down. Anyway. <laughs> well, actually, it, it, it's just here, it was here and it was on the coast here in uh, Great Yarmouth in 19. It uh, joined the war. It was actually taken down by the government in 1942 uh, because they were after metal for, for guns. If you go around Norwich, you'll see an awful lot of rays chopped off, especially down Cosley and have uh, you. And that was the result of that. but It's a nice scene there, you see the ladies in there, their hats and frocks and so on, Um, (coughs) about the time of the Great War. This one we're not doing today. Where we go? From here. There we go. Now I put this in here because uh, Norwich and Norwich in particular and Norfolk had a great problem at the beginning of the war with alcohol. There are at least seven large breweries. Uh, Bullards are still there, isn't it? That's residential flats now down in Coslaney. <clears throat> and um, very often, there, there were so many unregulated pubs, people uh, would, uh, would buy a barrel of beer from a pub or <coughs> up the road and put it in their front room and sell it, and, and try and eke out a living. And the authorities were always ordering such places to be shut down, only for another one to open very often next door. Um, so you got alcohol on one hand, it led to problems with the recruitment of, the health of the uh, recruitment of troops, uh, in, especially at the beginning of the war. Um, but to fight this, you had a lot of temperance societies. So this is one of the biggest independent order of... Anyone open that up? I googled it. Recubites. Um Apparently to do with an ancient... Uh, an old civilization that had nothing to do with alcohol. Uh, they do look a very merry lot, don't they, these four? <laughs> a marvellous record. We live in deeds, not words. Striking figures. Um, <coughs> but it's interesting, it just brings, brings to uh, the four, the problem we had in certain parts of our county with alcohol. Uh,
1: this has this got any link? Well, I don't know. Pubs were open twenty-four-seven. Yeah, yeah. And because of the issues with
0: yeah. people working in munitions. Yeah. I well, have heard that. Heard that. Yeah. yeah. I Especially during me. the Second World War, I've heard that. Oh
1: yes, yeah. I.
0: Because I've probably learnt from all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe it only came in at the same way and we never got round to it. the same yeah. thing in yeah.
0: There was restrictions. Yeah. Certainly, it lasted a long time, didn't it? Mm. When I was growing up. You couldn't get a drink after on Sundays Sundays after ten. Even later mm. it was if was just was dry. Right mm. after the, the Park. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Excuse me, what's the address at the bottom one? City View, what road is it?
0: Deerham Road. Uh yeah, road? Called, Deerham? Deerham Road. Dearham road. road? City, City, City View. View Deerham Road. Don't say somebody lives there. It yeah. could be anywhere. Yes. <laughs> well, let's have a go down. <laughs> have a quick <look> little <laughs> city view. Uh I just like this picture. This is. Um, anybody know where this is? It's from another book of mine, actually. Um, I nicked it from that a book called When School Days Were Fun. But I just love the fashion of the girls and the boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're testing the water temperature and having a wonderful time and that's the only excuse it's there it's in great gardens. I suppose again it brings us to the fore um, important uh, seaside activities and seaside, seaside economy was during this time I just made that up but, um, that's the first Lord Mayor of Norwich because we became we, we were entitled to become to have Lord Mayors I think in 19... Uh, Ten, eleven, and this gentleman here. Um I won't say anything more about him. Where's this? Yeah? yeah. yeah. Um <coughs> uh, Peter Bancroft there in the back? Um, pre-city, hall. Mm? pre-City Hall. Pre-City Hall. Hall, absolutely, <laughs> that does look much like City Hall, does it? Um Interesting though, uh, for a couple of more reasons as well, you've got lamps here, electric lamps. Uh, 1760, I think, electric lamps were installed in Norwich in 1913, and also the tram system, we had a tram system from about 1902. And both of these things were to cause problems during the war. Um, Norwich became what is known as a city of dreadful night. So stringent were the regulations about not having lights. Um, so the, uh, the glory that was the um, lighting system had to really wait until after the war to, uh, to come into its own. Uh, trams were actually quite comical. Um, for a time, uh, they were only allowed a candle inside. That was later upgraded to a light. Um, and for a time, They didn't have a light outside either. Um, People used to wander around with umbrellas in the pitch dark, looking for their houses, and sometimes causing each other damage. And there are stories of people going into the wrong house. You go in, you're tired, you flop down, you say, where's my cup of tea, and you realise you're not in the right place. Um, the Eastern Daily Press had a mischievous report saying that as people had to stay in longer, they started to read greater literature, they called it, presumably the classics. And the final sentence of one such report I remember reading said, um, the Scots had always enjoyed greater literature, whatever that meant. Perhaps the writer was a Scot. But uh, no, here we go. That's Norwich, indeed. Norwich Market. Uh, That's just a very nice photograph of a ship, of a ship, of a shop, (laughs) (laughs) a ship shop, of a shop. Um, In Sherry, Um, you notice that says, and library as well, so a lot of places, although Norwich had a library since I think about 17 something, uh, private libraries are very popular. We talked about this gentleman earlier. Uh, to do with something yellow?
2: Coleman.
0: Yes, that's Mr. Jeremiah Coleman. Um, I don't know what he thinks now about what's going on with his firm down the river. Um, Anybody recognise this? It's about 1913. That store is still there although the frontage is different. Pardon? No, it's not thorns. No, it's actually in uh, grey
2: yarmouth. Palmers, oh.
0: absolutely, oh. Palmers. Um, and in the book, we've got a picture taken from the same place. It's got the modern, uh, the modern frontage, but the. not um, seem to work again. These uh, windows again. It's only exactly the same, painted differently, but the top of the street is the same, more or less. Oh, there we go. There it is. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize we had it here, um, I think the frontage is probably more elegant there. Isn't there? Oops. And let's go on to him, then.
2: Here's
0: is, Baron von Richtowen, yeah? Known as the Red Baron. Um, the first great aviation hero, really. Because um, Airplanes were very much in their infancy as the war came about. The first flight in, in uh, Norfolk was only in 1912. Um, uh, a monoplane called the Firefly, Mr. B.J. Hicks, I recall, flew a few hundred yards. Uh, this chap was the terror of uh, British fighters. Um, we had our own heroes, of course, the Albert Hall. Um, but this, he remarked that, the Red Baron said, he lost his lust for hunting for about 15 minutes when he'd shot down an Englishman. He was killed, in fact, following the fight with a Sockwith camel that could well have been made in Norwich, because more Sockwith camels were made in Norwich than anywhere else. He managed to land his plane. He was shot. He managed to land his plane, but he died. There is controversy that people on the ground shot him too. It's not absolutely proved that he was shot in the air. But, um, mm. That's home. This is another picture of uh, George Blob, Cromer, in the book. And what's going on here? I wonder. Um, uh, clue: It's Great Yarmouth again. Another clue: It's St Nicholas Church, which is reputed to be the largest church in England, and I understand several other churches claim the same thing. Um, it's dragging the nets in, it's fishermen dragging the nets in for blessing before the fishing season started. And finally, to end up with just a glorious view, which is from our book, uh, in the book again, a book by Daniel Tink, who I work with a lot, who takes uh, photographs uh, for us a lot of the time. Uh, this is obviously Beast and Bump looking towards Um the book actually ends with a 46-mile trek along the great uh, Norfolk path across the top from Hunstanton to Cromer. Um, yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Should you wish to buy a book, absolutely delighted so it's to sell you one 1299. It's signed already. Um, if you'd like me to put a message in, I'll be delighted. but um, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening.) <laughs>